0: Here's the word for today. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner, you may exact it. But whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release But there will be no poor among you, for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance to possess, if only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he has promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow, and you shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart, and you say, The seventh year, the year of release, is near." and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother, and you give him nothing, and he cry to the Lord against you, and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake, for there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. If your brother, a Hebrew man or a Hebrew woman, is sold to you, he shall serve you six years, and in the seventh year you shall let him go free from you. And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, and out of your winepress. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore I command you this today. But if he says to you, I will not go out from you, because he loves you and your household, since he is well off with you, then you shall take an awl and put it through his ear into the door, and he shall be your slave forever. And to your female slave you shall do the same. It shall not seem hard to you, when you let him go free from you, for at half the cost of a hired worker, he has served you six years. So the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do.
1: Uh, it's good to be with you, friends, and I'm really grateful that um, in season and out, we can let the Word of God decide what we need to hear. I don't know how many of you would have turned to this chapter this morning and said, you know what I really want you to preach on? It's it's Deuteronomy 15 in the sabbatical year. But isn't there a great humility in saying, Lord, we believe that whatever you have seen fit to say, we need to hear. We need to hear. So we can lean in with expectation, friends. Would you help us to do that, Lord? I think it's really easy, brothers and sisters, to reduce Christian ethics to a list of right and wrongs. Do these things. Don't do these things. You following? You know, we, we think, what, what makes someone a Christian? What, what are Christians? They're, they're religious rule keepers. Here's, here's the problem with that perspective. The judgment of God in hell will fall on many who thought they were religious rule keepers. Why? That's not just a dramatic thing pastors say. That's that's what God tells us. Why? Be- because there's a kind of rule keeping that is delightfully pleasing to God, and there's a kind of rule keeping that arouses his righteous wrath. So what's the difference? <laughs> what's a matter of motivation? Many ways. Are you obeying God's word to prove you're a good person? Are you keeping God's rules so you can, you can make or, or manipulate him to, to give you stuff or goodies that you want? Or are you doing life God's way because you're amazed by grace? And you're, you're consumed with a passion for God's glory and, and your joy in his glory. The, the God with whom we have to do, here's the principle, friends, is concerned with more than what we do. He's concerned with why we do it. What's motivating us, where, where it's coming from in your heart. Isaiah 29:13. This people, speaking of Israel, draw near with their mouth. And honor me with their lips. They sing a lot of great songs. But their hearts are far from me. Just take generosity to the poor, for example, of how this can play out. Okay? I, I could give you a list of, of past and present philanthropists who are really incredibly generous to the poor And yet, whose giving has absolutely nothing to do with the Lord. Right? Who God is, what what He's done for us, it's not motivating them in the least. So, does that make their giving bad for society? Not necessarily. Right? Because of something called common grace. That's a whole other message. But but it illustrates this fact that that what makes our, our ethics or our life choices, Christian, involves more than what we do. We have to consider why we're doing it. Why are we doing it? Why why are we giving? And, And in Deuteronomy 15, so grateful for this, the Lord addresses more than what Israel is supposed to do. What are they supposed to do? Forgive debtors, provide for the poor, set indentured servants free. There you go. That's the summary. But but God doesn't stop there. He puts his finger on their motives. Why should you forgive your debtors? Why should you provide for the poor? Why should you set your indentured servants free? It's it's the motivational factor, the motivational piece, where it's coming from both, both then and now that makes our giving Christian. So what's that factor? What's that motivation? Put simply, it's our Redeemer's faithfulness to bless. Our Redeemer's faithfulness to bless. Did you notice six times in 18 verses, when you you see something repeating in God's word, you should always kind of, huh, that, that catches my attention. Six times in 18 verses, Moses explicitly says, for the Lord will bless you the Lord your God will bless you. For this, the Lord your God will bless you as the Lord your God has blessed you or so the Lord your God will bless you. Over and over and over again. What's this point? Christian ethics are always rooted in Christian theology. And, and the way we give is no exception, okay? Here, here's what I mean. The kind of generosity, the only kind of generosity that ultimately pleases the Lord is both a response to God's blessing and a pursuit of God's blessing. Responds to his blessing and pursues his blessing. Here's the main point of the whole passage. Summarize it this way, okay? Our Redeemer's faithfulness to bless is what compels a lifestyle of every member generosity. Our Redeemer's faithfulness to bless. That's what makes our giving, our motivation, distinctly Christian. And that lifestyle required three actions on Israel's part. I mentioned them earlier, so let's, let's look at each one of these, okay, and consider what are the implications for our generosity today. So here's the first one: first action required of Israel, forgiveness for debtors, verses one through six, forgiveness for debtors. You you may not be aware of this, but in Israel's day, I hope you're aware of this. uh, They didn't have credit cards. (laughs) Uh, They they didn't have central banking. There there was no FDIC. There was no stock market. There were no CDs or bonds or all all, or bank loans. If you experienced financial hardship, and you needed something or you had to borrow something, guess who you talked to? You talked to your neighbors the people that lived around you. And then and now, that puts creditors in a significant position of economic power. A a power that that could readily consign a debtor to lifelong poverty. And that that wasn't God's heart for his people. Look Look at verse one. So every seven years, he commanded every creditor To love their neighbor by releasing what he has lent to his neighbor. In other words, don't continue to require repayment. Cancel the debt. That's not because God's a Marxist. Okay. Verse three, look there. Strongly affirms the biblical value of private property. And the right to control your own assets. Whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release, Moses says. Notice that. So, why did Israelite creditors have to forgive the outstanding balance on their fellow Israelites' debts every seven years? whether or not they lent that stuff or that ox or that money or that sheep or that whatever 6 days earlier or 6 years earlier why they have to do that it seems a little harsh lord look at verse 2 moses tells us because the lord's release has been proclaimed the lord's release Notice this isn't Moses' idea. This isn't a proletariat idea. (laughs) This is the Lord's idea, friends. Why would that be the Lord's idea? I mean, what are you doing with that, God? Well, friend, it's a reflection of God's heart. Of his own character. He, He is a God who delights in forgiveness, friend. He delights in forgiveness. What, what, what did he tell Moses about himself all the way back in, in Exodus 34? I am a God who forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. He didn't owe that to Israel in response to her, her rebellion against his authority. By the way, he doesn't owe that to you and me in response to our rebellion against his authority. We don't deserve God's forgiveness. And yet forgiveness is so important to the Lord that he, he baked a powerful illustration of it into the rhythm of life for his covenant people. Crushing debt is a significant contributing factor to enduring poverty. Maybe you're struggling to make ends meet right, right now in some way, or, or maybe you're one of the millions of Americans who, who helped send, I read a report this week, our collective credit card outstanding balance just surpassed $1 trillion as a nation. If you're part of that, you know exactly what I mean. That debt can be controlling, right? That debt can become oppressive. and, And the more you're in debt, the harder it becomes to get out of debt. But notice the Lord didn't say, So if they can't afford the payments, cancel the debt. No, no matter the amount, no matter the underlying cause or why they needed the loan in the first place, forgive them. Forgive them fully, forgive them completely. Do it on my behalf, the Lord says, because it's the Lord's release. The Lord's release but let me make something very clear. Okay. Please listen. Lest we go crazy with this passage because Jesus fulfilled the law. We are, we are no longer under the law in a covenantal sense as the people of God. And we're no longer defined as God's people as a theocratic nation state. We are the spiritual assembly of the church. America is not the people of God. The church is, is the people of God. So don't take Deuteronomy 15, one through three to your Christian banker this week or to your Christian contractor and say, you have to forgive me. Okay, don't do that. And certainly don't say your pastor told you to do that. So so if we can't do that, what do we do with this? Let's start here. Notice, what's the principle? The Lord is faithful to make a way for his people to be forgiven. He's faithful to make a way. I'm not not talking here about the financial debt you still owe the Bank of America. I'm talking about the spiritual debt every one of us owes to God on account of our sin. That's a far greater debt, friend. Far more significant debt. If when, if when you think of all the debts I have had, presently have, or could have, what is the largest? If the first thing that comes to your mind is not the debt you owe God, you do not understand the gospel of Jesus Christ. I don't care how underwater you are. Our debt, my debt to a holy God, the God we've been singing about today, is the greatest that we will ever have. And he's made a way for that to be forgiven. That's the thing. See, what, what's the requirement? It's not being a good person. It's what Caleb said earlier. It's, it's confessing your sin and, and trusting Jesus' work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin. That's the requirement. Because forgiveness in God's kingdom isn't something you earn, it's a gift. And here's what makes the spiritual forgiveness of sin you enjoy, Christian, so much greater than the financial forgiveness Israelite debtors were supposed to experience. Okay, here's why it's greater, among many reasons. Try this one for size. Your sins, Christian, don't pile up for six years. Think about that. What, what does Jesus do the moment you trust in him, Christian? The moment you turn from trying to save yourself by keeping all the rules or breaking all the rules. Forgive me, Lord Jesus. I trust you for the forgiveness of my sins. What, what happens in that moment? Jesus does something. You know what that is? He removes your transgressions and deaths as far as the East is from the West. How do we know that? Because it sounds good to say on Sunday morning? No, because God said it. God said it. Micah 7, 19. You will cast all our sins into the depths of the sea. If you are feeling the weight of your guilt before God right now, do you know you can be forgiven in this very moment? right now as I'm speaking to you, you can cry out the quiet of your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and your debts against God. And he will remove your transgressions as far as the east is from the west. Don't wait for that, friend. Today can be the day of salvation. Right now, Be reconciled to God. God gave Israelite creditors an incredible privilege, crazy privilege of reflecting his heart, of of demonstrating his character by, by releasing the debts that their neighbors owed them. Christian, hear me. God has given you the same privilege today in a far greater way. And I'm not talking about financial debt. Remember, we're not a theocratic nation state. I'm talking about relational debts. I'm talking about the fifth petition of the Lord's prayer. Matthew 6, 12, forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. Jesus instructs us. He commands us to forgive one another. Relationally. What's that mean? To to absorb the cost of other people's sin against us instead of retaliating and making them suffer like we've suffered. That doesn't mean we we hide each other from experiencing the consequences of our sin. God uses the pain, the consequences of self-inflicted sorrows to bring his people to repentance. But it does mean we have to quickly adopt, we must quickly adopt a posture of forgiveness toward our debtors. Even if we're still waiting for them to come to their senses as it were and come to you and, and ask for forgiveness and have that transaction, we maintain the posture of forgiveness. Not once every seven years, but every moment of every day. I think at first glance, God's social ideal in verse four, look there, very beginning of the verse, could seem like a contradiction to verses one through three. Maybe you felt that. But there will be no poor among you for the Lord will bless you in the land that the Lord your God is giving you. Okay, well, hold on a second. If if there's gonna be no poor in the land of Canaan, then why is anyone going to need their debts forgiven? Which one is it? God? Well, I, I think the late Timothy Keller's comment here on this verse is helpful. This does not mean, but there will be no poor among you, that people would not continue to fall into poverty. But if Israel as an entire society had kept God's laws perfectly, with all their hearts, there would have been no permanent, long-term poverty. So it works like this, okay? To to put verses four through six together. Listen, God promises in verse four that he will be faithful to bless Israel in the land of Canaan. It won't be a mediocre land or a subpar land where, where only select few can rise above the poverty level. God makes a promise. There's gonna be plenty of provision and abundance for all my people. But Israel had a responsibility, verse 5, to faithfully obey God's commands in response to his blessing. Including what? The command to release each other from from debts every seven years. That every member of the nation, not just the rich, could enjoy God's blessing. And if Israel obeyed and was faithful to do that, verse 6, God would continue to bless her with economic prosperity. The surrounding nations wouldn't exercise financial power over her. She would exercise financial power over them. But because verse six has been so abused in many Christian circles, let me issue a word of caution here in our application. Remember, we're a different people under a different covenant, okay? So, obeying Jesus, forgiving the people around you is never a get-out-of-debt-quick strategy or a get-rich-quick strategy. You hear somebody preaching that, writing that, that is a false gospel, friends. But the principle here remains, okay? What's that? It's God's faithfulness to bless That compels our obedience to his commands. Do you realize that? What what compels our obedience to his commands? It's his faithfulness to bless. Including his blessing on those who forgive as God has forgiven them. He he delights, in other words, to to reward our obedience with further blessing. Verse 6, for the Lord your God, if you're willing to obey, will bless you. That hasn't changed. Now now imagine an Israelite creditor thinking something like this. Maybe you can relate to this. Now, Moses, hold on a second. (laughs) Wait just a minute here. If I forgive everyone who owes me money or whom I lent my money, won't I go broke? What about me? Well, no, you won't, Moses says. Why not? Because of verse 6. For the Lord your God will bless you. There will be no poor among you, including those who, by forgiving debts, could, in their mind, be concerned, I'm going to become impoverished as a result. There will be no poor among you. God will provide for you, friend. God will sustain you. Why? Because his faithfulness to bless... Well, while it's mediated through, through the obedient, obedient generosity of his people in verses one through three, it's not ultimately grounded in the character of men. It's grounded in his faithfulness to his word. Look back at verse six. For the Lord your God will bless you if the people around you are generous as they're supposed to be. No, as he promised you. Because he's a God who keeps his promises. God's faithfulness to bless Israel in keeping with his covenant promises is the ultimate motivation for Israel's faithfulness to keep God's commands. Hear that, including forgiving her debtors. Friend, this same faithful God will empower you and equip you to forgive your debtors today. He'll be faithful to you. What what feels impossible to you is not impossible with God. Our Redeemer's faithfulness to bless compels a lifestyle of generosity. Starting with forgiving our debtors. But it doesn't stop there. Here's the second thing God told Israel to do. Provide for the poor. Provide for the poor. Verses 7 through 11. If If you're not already aware of this, part of Moses, I'll just call it his pastoral strategy in Deuteronomy, is to remind Israel of God's ideal for his people. Okay, verse four does that, right? But there will be no poor among you. But then at the same time, pastoral wisdom here, Moses provides laws that that deal with the realities of life in a fallen world because we haven't yet realized God's ideal, right? We're not, we're not home to the new heavens and the new earth yet. And that's, that's where verses seven through 11 come in. Look at verse seven. If among you, one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Think about that, friend. I, it is so easy for us to consider the materially poor as a social problem, or a government problem, or a deacon problem, or maybe even, well, that's my community group leader's problem. <laughs> Somebody in leadership should deal with that. Well, look at verse 7. The Lord taught Israel to view a brother or sister in need as a personal problem with a personal solution. Notice, I hope you caught this, how many times (coughs) the word you or your appears in verses 7 through 8. One of your brothers in any of your towns within your land, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. Open your hand. There, there's no, someone should do something about that response in scripture. What are you going to do? That's the question. And and God's solution to poverty among his people re- required more, notice this, than a token handout. Well, here's a little expression of goodwill. No, it it required a compassionate heart. It always starts there, brothers and sisters. If, If someone in our church family is experiencing material deprivation, our first move, our first responsibility isn't to say, well, maybe, could this have been their fault? They need Dave Ramsey. No, our first responsibility is to sympathize with their plight. Imagine that was you. Imagine you're trying to choose between paying the rent or buying groceries. Here again, notice the complete absence of any sort of unless they did it to themselves clause. <laughs> The issue is not whether they brought their poverty on themselves. The issue is whether we will respond with a compassionate heart. But we don't stop there, right? You know, sending love and hugs. No, Israel had to be faithful to, to act on her compassion, right? By lending the poor all they needed to help meet their need. The lending language here doesn't preclude the role of outright gifts, but it does emphasize the importance of us providing for the poor in a way that preserves their personal responsibility and dignity. Think about that. Lending implies what? An opportunity for repayment, an opportunity for work, and an opportunity for initiative on the part of the poor. And yet the biblical standard remains It's not what we think they deserve that sets the bar for our generosity. It's their demonstrated need. It's their need. And and the early church took the same approach in Acts 4, verse 33. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them. That's, that's That's an exact word for word quote of Deuteronomy 15, 4 from the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Old Testament. Not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Notice the focus of their generosity, okay? It was their fellow church members. And Paul affirms the same principle in Galatians 6, 10. Listen, So then, as we have opportunity, speaking to the church, let us do good to everyone and especially to those who are of the household of faith. So here's my exhortation to you, okay? If you are a member of Kingsway, be attentive to what's going on in your brothers and sisters' lives. Be be attentive, pay attention, okay? When, When you hear someone has lost a job, when you hear somebody's just had a significant medical issue, when you learn that a car's broken down or, or their work has been slow, don't, don't shy away from, from asking, hey, how are you doing financially? Don't shy away from that. Don't, don't make someone wait to tell you. Humbly ask, care. And if you hear of a need or you just suspect a need, friend, be generous. Be generous. In Israel's case, Moses anticipated an objection to this call to provide for the poor. Look at verse 9. He just keeps going after our hearts. It's like, come on, Moses, take care, lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. And you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near. And your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. Nothing. What's the objection here? Well, Moses, if I lend something to this guy. Lend. Even if he agrees to pay me back. Because of the first thing you said, I'm going to have to forgive this debt in two months. Which basically means I'm not going to see any of this money again that I lent. (laughs) I have a problem with that, Moses, because I, I really like to help. I, I do, trust me. But just if it doesn't cost me anything in return, or if I'm confident that, I mean, I'll get a little something back, right? Friends, we can have the same attitude. I can have the same attitude, right? We, we, can, we can agree in theory, that we should bear one another's burdens and amen that when the preacher says that but but when push comes to shove we're only willing to do it if it doesn't impact any of our possessions or stop us from achieving our desired standard of living it's like yeah i'll i'll help you you know as soon as i'm i'm able well, able able to do what well well you know to to still go on four vacations a year and and help you. (laughs) Biblical love is always costly. That's the point. And that cost includes material goods. So here's some questions for you. If you loan your car out to someone, will they put miles on your engine and wear out your brakes? Yes. They will. If you have a family with kids over for dinner that you met on Sunday... Will one of them hurl spaghetti on your pure white restoration hardware rug? Yes. By the way, you shouldn't have that under your table in the first place. <laughs> but talk to my wife for interior decorating advice. But I guarantee you that'll happen. I mean, I was thinking about just my life is full of these examples. Um, when I was younger, I remember my dad, one of the most generous men I know, um, you're a tremendous example, dad. I'm not alone saying that. My dad saw fit to loan out the two fishing reels we owned to another father and son who didn't have any. At the time, I remember thinking like, that's my fishing reel. You couldn't go to Walmart and buy a fishing reel? Wait, wait, it's 10 bucks. And today it's probably like 40, I don't know. <laughs> But, but guess what? One of the reels came back miserably tangled. I was not a happy camper. My dad somehow remained a happy camper. <laughs> but I say that because I see in my own heart that selfishness likes to hide under the cloak of good stewardship. I'm not selfish. I'm just a, I'm a good steward. Friend, we need to look to God's word so that God can define what good stewardship actually is. Look at verse 10. Let's do that right now. Verse 10, what's good stewardship in God's kingdom? You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. That is the biblical definition of faithful stewardship of your possessions. So why should I give up my free evening or my clean home or my hard-earned cash to provide for them? If That's what it is. Why should I do it? Keep reading in verse 10. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in, in all that you undertake. He's, he's motivating you. He's, he's inviting us out of selfishness and into generosity with the promise of His blessing and His generosity. Jesus does this all the time. Luke 6:34. If you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, what credit is that to you? <laughs> no kidding. If even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount, but love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return. And your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the most high for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Do you believe God delights to motivate and reward our generosity with his blessing? Why do I linger here? Well, because I have heard and seen what I will call a species of disinterested generosity in Christian circles that is dangerously unbiblical. You ready for this? I'm talking about an attitude that says, any giving motivated by a desire for reward is suspect. It almost sounds noble. But it's ultimately arrogant. Why? Because that attitude basically says to God, I know you've promised blessing to those who are generous, but I don't want your blessing and I don't need your blessing because I'm not like lesser mortals who have this interest in your blessing. Yikes. Friend, when God, hear this, When God rewards you for using his material possessions that he gave you in the first place for his purposes, when he rewards you for doing that, he's not making much of you. He's not. He's making much of himself. Why? Because he's showing the world the goodness of his ways. He's he's giving you a taste of the abundance of life in his kingdom. Saying in verse 10, for this, the Lord, your God will bless you. Doesn't make our giving self-centered. It makes our giving gloriously God-centered because any blessing we receive in return ultimately reflects his generosity and his faithfulness. Hear that. And so when God blesses us, he does it, not so that we can experience the joy of hoarding and building bigger barns and check out my 10 cars. He, he does it. Why? 2 Corinthians 9 11. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every If you're afraid of being motivated by God's blessing and your generosity, you are denying the Lord the very thing he's eager to give you so you can be generous in the first place. So let me give you a practical suggestion. Maybe you struggle. I I totally get this, okay? Don't be condemned by this. Maybe you struggle, a member of our church, to identify people around you in this community, our community, who need material help like I'm racking my brain like I don't, I don't think they're poor and they're poor and I saw their car. I, they can't be poor. You know. If that's a struggle for you, two recommendations. First, ask one of our deacons of mercy. You can find their names on our website who you could bless. Maybe the fact that you don't know of anybody doesn't mean they don't exist. Or do this, consider setting aside a percentage, a set percentage of your income every month to support our mercy fund as a church that that we use to provide for, for needs in our community, especially those of the household of faith. The point is that loving our neighbor then and now requires a lifestyle of every member generosity. And that's compelled by God's faithfulness to bless that, that meant forgiving debtors. That meant providing for the poor. Here's the last thing. That meant freedom for the vulnerable. Freedom for the vulnerable. When with this? If you became really, really poor in Moses' day, Israel's day, you could actually sell yourself to your creditor. It was a system called you know, becoming a bond servant or an indentured servant. You could use the funds to help settle your debts, but it was really easy to take advantage of bond servants. Imagine, you know, if if, if your debt was really large, or if interest just continued to accumulate, even after you sold yourself to your creditor to pay for part of your debt, well, you could just remain trapped in this cycle of slavery for the rest of your life, right? So, so as a short-term measure of last resort, This whole voluntary slavery thing could be something of a source of protection and blessing if you were a really impoverished farmer. Keep you from starving. But it could also turn into lifelong bondage for you and all your descendants. And that was not the Lord's heart for his people. Why? He he redeemed them from slavery in Egypt so they could be free. Not so they could turn around and and permanently enslave one another. There's dignity and joy, friends. Dignity and joy by God's design in economic and financial independence. So if a fellow Israelite was sold to you, look at verse 12. He could serve you for six years. But in the seventh, you shall let him go free. And when you let him go, you shall liberally furnish or more literally translated, check this out, richly garland his neck, hang about his neck. Think about that image. Livestock, seed, and wine, sufficient for him to make a fresh start and avoid falling right back into financial poverty. And if you look at verse 14, Moses gives us the compelling reason to set them free with, with plentiful provision. As the Lord your God has blessed you, you shall give to him. What's his point? Whatever we give, we've, we've just first received. Right? And, and our generosity should be proportional to the Lord's blessing on our lives. Notice Moses did not say five bushels of this, two quarts of that, and four sheep. That's the standard. Check the box. Do your duty. Christian ethics, right and wrong heart. What's that? No, no. He simply says, bless them as the Lord has blessed you. Friend, if over the course of your career, you make more and more and more and more money, you know what should be increasing over the course of your career? Your generosity. If it's just your standard of living increasing, you're not stewarding God's wealth. You're being selfish. Selfish. As the Lord has blessed you, give to him. But but there's another reason in verse 15. Look there. This is a whole sermon in and of itself. It's even more compelling. Why, Why set your bondservant free with abundant provision? Because the Lord is a redeeming God. And he expects us to follow his example, loving as we've been loved. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt and the Lord your God redeemed you. Therefore, I command you this today. To redeem someone means what? To pay whatever price is necessary to set them free. That, that's what God did for Israel in the Exodus right? He sent plague after plague on the land culminating in the, the death of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. That was quite a price to set them free, redeem his firstborn son, Israel. Brothers and sisters, that price, that exodus, that, that act of divine redemption points forward to a greater price a greater exodus, a greater act of divine redemption that came centuries later. Only this time, it wasn't redemption from slavery to men. It was redemption from the power and the guilt of sin. Slavery to that. Your redemption, Christian, cost your God his very life. And he paid it willingly for the choice set before him so you could be free. Luke four eighteen, 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me, Christ said, because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives. That's you, Christian. And recovering of sight to the blind. To set at liberty those who are oppressed. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Yes, Jesus fulfilled those words in one sense. Through his physical miracles of healing. But friend, he fulfilled them in an even greater, far greater sense. Through his death and resurrection. So securing your liberty from sin and it's the same gospel of our freedom that promises what yes right now we have freedom from the guilt and the power of sin but guess what kind of day is coming because of that gospel a coming day new heavens new earth when we're going to be free from the presence of sin and on that day I have good news for you if you are languishing your entire life here in material poverty I have good news for you there's going to be no physical poverty on that day Verse four, but there will be no poor among you, will not just be the ideal, it will become the real. So why should you be generous, Israel? Because you serve a God who redeems and restores. Why should you be generous, Christian? Because you have a God who redeems and restores. First John three sixteen. by this we know love, that Jesus laid down his life for us. and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone sees or anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Tim Keller. Clarifies the connection here. Listen carefully to these words. People who come to grasp the gospel of grace and become spiritually poor find their hearts gravitating toward the materially poor. You cannot say to them, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps, because you certainly did not do that spiritually. Jesus intervened for you. And you cannot say, I won't help you because you got yourself into this mess. Since God came to earth, moved into your spiritually poor neighborhood, as it were, and helped you, even though your spiritual problems were your own fault. In other words, when Christians who understand the gospel see a poor person, they realize they are looking into a mirror. Their hearts must go out to him or her without an ounce of superiority or indifference. Has the gospel done that in you? Does does the lifestyle of your generosity testify to that gospel? That's the question, friend. He may not have an indentured servant. I don't know of any of you that do. (laughs) But many of you have employees. Many of you have direct reports at your office. Many, Many of us are in positions of authority where the choices we make, the things we do, have financial implications for those under our care. So be on guard against greed, friend. The Lord warned masters in Israel he is warning employers today don't manipulate your employees into serving you or take advantage of them and their vulnerability equip them to what to freely and joyfully provide for themselves and their and their dependents why because if you do verse 18 the Lord your God will bless you in all that you do what what where do we end in this passage? Where does Moses leave us? Reminding us this, this is the principle. A sturdy faith that believes God will care for you, that trusts God to provide for you, is the only power strong enough to free you from the love of money so that you can begin loving people with God's money. Only our Redeemer's faithfulness to bless will compel and sustain a lifestyle. Of every member generosity. So remember, friend, God cares about so much more than just whether you give. He cares about why, He cares about your motive. that's That's what makes our giving distinctly Christian. We give. We forgive, we provide, we, we seek freedom for the vulnerable. Not, not because we have this sense of guilt or it's just the force of habit. We do it because of God's faithfulness to bless. God has blessed us for Jesus sake. He will bless us for Jesus sake. And so with his faithfulness in view, we overflow in generosity. Let's be that kind of church. Amen. Please do it, Lord. If the band would come on up, we're going to sing a final song. Father, we pray that you would please help us to remember our redemption. Help us to remember. Israel needed to remember. You told Israel to remember. Lord Jesus, we need your help to remember. We don't want just to to check boxes. We want to please you from the inside out. Thank you for the gospel, Lord. Thank you for your lavish generosity toward us. Would, Would your generosity, your blessing, push us from before? The promise of your reward, draw us from in front. To be generous as you are generous not to earn your favor. We can never merit your favor, God. We don't deserve your favor. But because we are so grateful, so affected, so amazed by your grace, would you make this a community, Lord, where we delight to be generous? Even when it costs us especially when it costs us, because you
0: became poor, Jesus, that you might make us rich. Help us, we pray in your name.